politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, liberty, property. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back today, Friday. We love Fridays, end of the week, April 29th. Another great day for independent conservative talk or just straight up independent, independent of the system of the oligarchs working for the people, working towards solutions, but most importantly, working to identify the problem. We can't solve something that we don't know the problem. I warned for years that we are going to repeat the same mistakes of the Tea Party in 2010 where the Democrats are extremely unpopular, they do radical things, and they only do those radical things because we've allowed Republicans to betray us for so long, and you know they get into power and do what they want. And then all of our energy gets jujitsued into this black hole of, you guessed it, the same old GOP. You tell me how we are going to change this. You tell me any signs, show me a sign where you see the GOP has changed. Both the current crop in terms of their attitude, their policies, their focus, their priorities, even the way they talk. And then the new candidates. How many candidates are you excited about headed into the midterms? How many more Ron DeSantis's are we going to get? Especially where they matter, which is for governor, or at least you know, state legislative leadership. You give me a good governor, you give me a good speaker in a state, you get the whole state. And we're going to have later today one such speaker, which is who is putting points on the board, but he's a rare exception. The endorsements are in shambles. Trump is endorsing horrible candidates for the most part. And especially at a state level. Once in a while, you'll get a good one at a federal level, but the Fed, the federal system is gone. What? So your Senate roster will go from 2.5 conservatives to 3.5. You're nowhere near doing anything. And even then, it's gone. It's lost. Anything not oriented towards getting a couple of the reddest states, and I define a red state just by you know the people, not the elected Republicans because they're blue, but where you have a supermajority of people that on a foundational level agree with us, but they're led astray by phony conservative talk radio, by phony conservative writers and figures, and of course the Republican Party and Fox News. The people are ready to rebel. You see, the problem is the Republican Party, what they do so effectively is help manage the decay that the Democrats create. And that's actually worse than having nothing. Because if you don't have managed decay, you have sudden, precipitous decay, and the people wake up and they'll demand a fundamental change, not this, you know, oh, let's let's just vote in the next election type of deal. But Republicans are like, oh, we got it, we got it, it's good. Or they downright convince our people to focus on stupidity. And I want to start out today demonstrating this thesis that Republicans are worse than ever on the issue of Ukraine. But it's not just about the issue of Ukraine. Ukraine is the new COVID. 
Ukraine is the palladium now, not just of all foreign policy, but of the next new vaccine, so to speak, the next new Pfizer, which is green energy, creating food and fuel shortages and price increases as an end to itself. So what they did with medical care, they're going to do with food and fuel. They've been pining for that. I don't have time today to gather all the evidence, but there's, this has been going on for a while. So this is not some sort of tangential issue. All right, you know, maybe it's kind of like stupid. We're getting involved in Yemen between the Houthis and the Al-Qaeda of Arabian Peninsula. Okay, you know, so I could deal with a guy who's maybe good on other things, but he's wayward on that. No, this is the central issue. And it also demonstrates that these same Republicans and even Freedom Caucus guys are going to get the next big current thing wrong until it's too late and like oh why are we spending all this money in ukraine who are we funding we're funding azov this is stupid all we're doing is causing price inflation yeah well now it's too late just like your partial day late dollar short reawakening on covid fascism was you know after it was too late it's the same cycle so by the time we finally get everyone righteous on an issue it's already too late So just yesterday, after we already spent $14 billion on Ukraine, I want you to understand, typically foreign aid, even during the era where we always used to lament the profligate foreign aid that no other country spends like we do, it was measured in the hundreds of millions. $14 billion to Ukraine, half of that in weapons. Can you imagine how much that could have been spent towards reparations for those that were injured by the shots. What could have been done with that money? We have record numbers of people dying of fentanyl. We're going to discuss that in the coming weeks with the border. Kudos to my friend Chip Roy for uh, um, you know, really taking apart Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, on that. By the way, he was on Tucker last night, and he used my line of, uh, if your blood is not clotting, it's, it's boiling. So that was that was the best part of it. Um, but anyway, yesterday, the House voted for a new Lend-Lease program, like a World War II-style Lend-Lease program to essentially transfer any sort of weapon to the Ukrainians. And again, Ukrainian is very ill-defined. It's not like England, France, Spain, where it's kind of like you know where it's going it's extremely fractured, extremely weak, extremely corrupt. It's an oligarch. Everyone knows it's grifting at best and downright arming dangerous people at worst, including the Azov Brigade, which if you look anywhere in the media, now they're like, they're calling it far right. Until a few years ago, they were like, oh, we're funding neo-Nazis. Now that it became the new cool thing, they call it far right. Everyone's a Nazi except for the one bona fide vestiges of Nazism in the world actually exist in Ukraine. By the way, the dogma lives loudly there. It's it's in the mother's milk there, the anti-Semitism. It's unbelievable. Um, and that's why the media obsessed about Zelensky being Jewish when nobody in Ukraine ever viewed him as such. And the Times of Israel has an article on that. That entire facade is a Western thing inside Ukraine. No one either knows about that, cares about it, or it's questionable to what extent he even is, and he certainly doesn't really consider himself that. But the, but the reason why they're so into that is to sanitize the truth that we are funding neo-Nazis. 
okay? So they voted 417 to 10, okay? So probably a few dozen other conservatives probably didn't like it too much, but they're too scared to go against the new current thing, just like they were with COVID, where only Thomas Massey was willing to stand up to the trillions of dollars of funding lockdowns and Pfizer. And then now they're all complaining about inflation when they caused it. Same thing here. Ten Republicans. Okay? What does it say in that resolute in that um bill and the Senate's gonna pass this unanimously probably? It 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 you could transfer any defense article. A defense article means I'm reading from the bill. Any weapon, weapon system, munition, aircraft, vessel, boat, or other implement of war, any property, installation, commodity, material, equipment, supply, or goods used for the purpose of making military sales, any machinery, facility, tool, material, supply, or any item necessary for the manufacture, production, processing, repair, servicing, storage, construction, transportation, operation, or use of any article listed in this paragraph. Um, You know, basically... In, in the next subsection, it spells out the only thing it prohibits is nuclear weapons. Everything short of that, they're handing to a black hole. So Republicans, and, and now Biden's asking for another, an, another $33 billion. And you look at Republicans, the only fight is some of the Democrats want to tether that to a new COVID bill. And Republicans are like, how dare you politicize this universal agreement behind the sacred Ukraine? We need it separate. But the point is, they all agree. And and again, from day one, the only criticism of Republicans, including Freedom Caucus members, by the way, and all the conservative hosts of Fox, except for Tucker and whatever, all these people the top, you know, go down the roster of the top 15 names on um, conservative talk radio slash podcast, and you'll know what I mean. And their only criticism was that Biden wasn't doing enough. That wasn't enough money. You cannot imagine the damage that we are causing, okay? It's not just that it's stupid. It's not just that it has no, you know, typically, we, we, the last 20 years, we didn't have an exit strategy in all these foreign engagements. Here, we don't even have an entry strategy. What exactly are we doing? I want to play here a clip of Joe Biden that everyone's passing around of him attempting to articulate um, what we're doing in Ukraine and on behalf of whom we're fighting and who we are fighting. Take a listen here. Of, uh, that will enhance our underlying effort to accommodate the Russian oligarchs uh, and make sure we take their take their their ill-begotten gains. <laughs> We're going to accommodate them. <laughs> We're going to seize their yachts, their luxury homes, and other ill-begotten gains of Putin's kleptocracy. Uh, yeah, kleptocracy and klep- the guys who are the kleptocracies. <laughs> but these are bad guys. So everyone's laughing out of that. Look, we have a senile president. He's dementia. He's cognitive decline. But, I mean, we know that. But, ironically, Biden's little riff there is emblematic and really a metaphor of the broader Republican conservative vision on Ukraine. They are just as bungling and incoherent as Biden is on that entire issue. Ask them in three sentences, articulate whom are you funding on behalf of who, whom, which ground are you taking, long term, what's your plan? And they can't answer that. 
So everyone always likes to laugh at Biden, laugh at the Democrats. The Republicans are doing the same thing. At least Biden, I could tell you, is cognitive decline. What are we going to say on behalf of Republicans? Here's what people can answer. Here's like five, six, seven questions you need to answer. Okay? Given the ethnic Russian majority in eastern Ukraine and the historic persecution by certain Ukrainian forces like Azov that were funding, how are we ever going to defeat the Russians and sustain that victory? Meaning even if somehow you defeated them, at the end of the day, it's not like Russia invading France or Spain. Totally different country, totally sovereign, nothing to do with it. All you have to do is disentangle them, and then you could preserve that country forever. Here, it's forever going to be on Russia's border. But more than that, the part east of the river there, it's ethnically, it's majority ethnically Russian, and then really far east, it's, it's 90 95%. The, the people are, are on Russia's side in those parts. Okay? And there's been a lot of dirty things going on on both sides. So now, when you fund the Azo Brigade, you're going to, if they were to ever, for the most part, they're not going to succeed. It's just the bloody war is going to continue going on. We're going to cause more civilians to get killed for no reason. More supply chain shortages and inflation for the entire world for no reason. Although the left is doing it on purpose because they actually want that. But Republicans who presumably don't want that, but they're, they're helping it. But even if you succeeded with this, it's not going to be over with. Basically, Ukraine, the Ukrainian government could never properly rule over the East, and the Russians could never properly hold the West, and they recognize that. See, everyone's like, oh, Russia's just going to march through Europe. They're not. Because the bottom line is, Russia's not stupid. They see the amount of casualties they've already taken. I think it's exaggerated, but the truth is somewhere in the middle in what they've already done. So even if they were to kind of march through Ukraine, uh, Kiev, and some of the major cities, even in the West, they couldn't hold it permanently. Because the same way, you know, the ethnic Russians rebel against the Ukrainians, the ethnic Ukrainians are going to rebel against the Russians, and they know that. They don't want another Afghanistan on their hand. The most humanitarian thing from day one should have been accepting the terms. No NATO, Crimea and Easter and, and those provinces in the East, are ethnically Russian, are ours. And they are anyway. You're, you're not losing anything. Israel, there's no country that's closer to Ukraine than Israel. They have amazing cultural and cross, you know, economic and travel ties. Um, believe it or not, it has the third largest Jewish population. They've taken a tremendous amount of refugees. Israel was there from day one. But at the same time, the Israeli government advised um, Zelensky to give in to Putin's demands. I mean, all you're going to do is prolong the suffering. You're never going to get back those areas. What are you doing? The only thing that could kick the Russians out would be a full-scaled allied invasion. And that's what they're getting us involved in. Anything short of that, you're just dumping money into another Sunni Shia dumpster fire where the weapons are going to go all over the place and to, and to no end and notice you look at 
the amount of money we've dumped in and compared to Europe, it's like 10 times more than every European country put together. If this is the new Poland Hitler 1938 moment, the Europeans sure ain't acting like it. Why are we barreling head first into what should be Europe's fight if it is? It makes no sense, these basic questions. You know, CNN had an article out last week. What happens to the weapons sent to the U.S., sent to Ukraine? The U.S. doesn't really know. The U.S. has very few ways of tracking the substantial supply of anti-tank, anti-aircraft, and other weaponry that has sent across the border in Ukraine, sources tell CNN. They quote one um, defense official, we have fidelity for a short time, but when it enters the fog of war, we have almost zero. It drops into a big black hole, and you have almost no sense of it at all after a short period of time. They talk about all of the um, Javelin and Stinger missiles we've given to them, which, by the way, Raytheon just announced they can't make enough to replenish our own supply, but yet we're sending tens of billions of dollars there. MI-17 helicopters, 155-millimeter howitzer cannons, switchblade drones, all that stuff. And they say, a one senior defense official, I couldn't tell you where they are in Ukraine and whether the Ukrainians are using them at this point. They're not telling us every round of ammunition they're firing. We may never know exactly what degree they've u- they're using the switchblades. Real nice. Real nice. Well, I could tell you where it's going. It's going to the strongest, most vicious factions. If not also falling into Russian hands. And again, Azov, the Azov guys, I mean, even Zelensky wanted a peace treaty in 2019, and Azov helped block it. So those guys are like the pure Kazakh neo-Nazis. And they're, I mean, so you're not going to overcome Russia without a tremendous sacrifice. And then even if you did, what it's going to do is is strengthen the hand of Azov and they're going to continue persecuting the Russians there. Russia's never going to let that go. That's what I'm saying. This is what we bought for ourselves. When finally we we you know, you know we reached a point after 25 years, we finally were not involved at least in a major scale conflict. We still do stupid things, Somalia, Yemen, all across the world, but you know, on a major scale, we finally you know had a reprieve where we could focus on our own hell here at home. No, every single conservative, nearly every one, not just the establishment ones, fell right into this. And again. Then it gets into the bioweapons, into the fact that this has been a playground for the Western oligarchs. There's something much more going on. They're playing right into the Russian collusion, right into the thing that took down Trump. They're playing right into it. And folks, the supply chain issues, the food and fuel shortages, it's not a bug. It's a feature. It's not like, oh, you know, they're willing to allow that to fight for Ukraine. No, that's the point. That is the Pfizer vaccine mandate equivalent of Ukraine. This guy, Diedrich Sampson, chief of staff of Franz Timmermans, the European Commission's executive VP uh, of res- responsible for energy policy. Here's a quote from him. It's astounding. This is in the UK Times. 
we have profited from it and created enormous wealth at the expense of the planet Earth. And as we realize right now, at the expense of geopolitical imbalances, he means Russia and you know Ukraine, both need to be repaired. In order to repair them, we need to pay more for energy. We need to pay more for energy and also for food, the two basic needs of life, food and energy. We have paid way too little for the past 40 years. That is what they believe. Republicans are supporting. This is on par with supporting COVID fascism. I can't overlook a conservative or Republican support for the, for the Klaus Schwab view on Ukraine. Yet all but 10 voted for it yesterday. So they have not learned their next lesson. So what this means is, here's the broader profundity of this. A lot of people are like asking me, Daniel, why aren't the Democrats scared? They keep like getting more radical. Don't they know they're going to lose historically? And here's what people don't understand. The Democrat consultants might be scared, meaning if you have a very narrow purview, your job is just to elect the side of the oligarch that has a D next to their name. So yeah, it's going to be a bad year for you. But if you're Klaus Schwab, if you're Bill Gates, if you're the people that actually run the world, the people that worry about policy outcomes, no, you don't care. Because here's what happens. They induce catalyzing geopolitical events. BLM, um, January 6th, COVID, Ukraine, there'll be more issues. And 95% of even the conservative Republicans will buy into it hook, line, and sinker, some even more emphatically than the Democrats. And particularly when Republicans have control of Congress, they'll be even more emphatic. Let me just make something up. Let's say, I don't know, there's a conflict in, you know, somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere in Africa, that that the oligarchs will have a plan to use to control us with. With Republicans in control of, of Congress, so now they have, the, they, they, they're sitting with a the bag, they'll be even more susceptible to even more emphatically and swiftly funding and undergirding the next plan. They have not learned, they have not changed. Now, I, I want to get to our guest, so... We, you know, we kind of went long on this because I did want to touch on the primaries. So this is the existing Republicans. What about the new Republicans? So let's talk about Ohio. Ohio's primary is on Tuesday. So most of the MAGA crowd is supporting J.D. Vance. I, I, I really don't know much because I don't care about Senate races anymore because I just think it's a waste of time. I spent my entire career on it, and, you know, I, I've come to realize it's a waste. I want to focus on the governors and state legislatures. But that's fine. People want to focus on that. That's fine. He, he probably is by far the best candidate. He seems to be saying the right things. Is he saying every last policy outcome that I think is important? I don't know. But hopefully, okay, let's say he's great. So we'll, again, we'll have, you know, rather than two, we'll have three good senators if he wins. And Trump, you know, was convinced to endorse the right guy for once. So all the conservative establishment, they're behind Josh Mandel. He was the quintessential conservative Republican. So he was saying all of our things. He was saying all of our things. He tried to sound like a MAGA guy, except when it came to Ukraine, he couldn't control himself. And the truth came out. And, and I'm telling you, that is going to really determine who gets it, who knows what time it is. But anyway, um, there's a book out from Jonathan Martin. He's one of the big political reporters. 
in Washington. He has a book out. And here's a quote. He talks about this this candidate, Josh Mandel in uh, Ohio. Mandel acknowledged to Republicans in Washington that he was parroting absurd rhetoric in the primary campaign out of a desire to court Trump and his supporters, but that was simply what he believed it would take to win. In fact, even as he publicly mimicked Trump's incendiary rhetoric, again, in their mind, Trump's like the right-wing guy when really Trump is subversive, but whatever, Mandel would privately reach out to McConnell's top lieutenants to alert them each time one of the top rivals, J.D. Vance, criticized Washington Republicans, effectively trying to have it both ways with Trump and the GOP leaders, he derided. And folks, it's not just about one man. This is what they're all doing, all these Republicans. So here there was enough MAGA support to kind of get a guy across, and I, I assume J.D. will win, but again, it will be one, basically one time, maybe once or twice in an entire cycle, and it will be for Senate, which does nothing for us. You go to the governor's race. I, I actually, it's worse than I said. I said we're going to lose Texas, probably not going to make it in Idaho, all the states where we need to. But at least Ohio, where the Republican is openly against, he, he's the biggest rhino you can imagine, openly against conservatives. He had the biggest lockdown you could imagine in a red state. Just like California and um, New York. So it wasn't even like some of these other Republicans where they kind of played the double game. You know, some of these other governors, they acted like they were against lockdowns but facilitated that and all the other bad policies. He was openly an animal. Mike DeWine, everyone knows that. And Trump openly jousted with him. We all thought, okay, Trump will endorse against him. Boom. I thought he'd be out. Nope. Of course, there's three candidates running against him and there's no runoff so the same old garbage of no one working together splitting the vote this is where trump could really make a difference and do diplomacy and get everyone behind one candidate instead he declined to endorse because all he cares about is the soap opera at a federal level he doesn't care about where the power actually is ohio is one of the fastest trending red states we have super majorities in the legislature all we need is a good governor and DeWine is going to pull away with it. The latest poll I saw is DeWine far ahead of the other candidates, but he's at 42%. So I think the presumption is if you had one candidate, he would lose. But it also shows you how many Republican voters, you would think a guy like that should have zero. But they're so confused because there's just no one focusing on what matters, and it's all about, oh, but, but Biden, but the Democrats. So meanwhile, they just reflexively vote for the incumbent Republican, you know, because they just worry about November. That's how, how they've been trained and groomed to think by Fox, phony talk radio, and all this subversive conservative movement. So this is what we're left with. We are not going to get, likely, a single new DeSantis. Not one! And, and all these guys that did the most horrific things to us, we thought that after all the things we've gone through as a people... We, we would finally reach that cathartic moment where the primaries would change things. Nope, they're the same thing as they always were. And then Trump declines to endorse, even against a guy he supposedly hates, incumbent. But then in Nevada, Nevada's an open, well, it's a Democrat seat, but Nevada's an interesting state. It's been trending red. It was swing, then it turned, it was light red, and Bush's years swung purple, then a little bit blue. And now it's really swinging back. A lot of it's the Hispanic vote is turning away from the Democrats. Um, there's a lot of good opportunities there. Could really do a lot there. 
theoretically, Republicans could even win a trifecta there. And basically, the race was this establishment guy from Clark County, the most liberal part, Joe Lombardo, and then a whole bunch of other candidates. So another one of these deals, great. We need to rally behind one. Um, I was going to have Joey Gilbert on. He's a He was a professional boxer, then a lawyer. Um, again, I don't know where he stands on the other issues. I don't know if there aren't other good people. I don't want to... I haven't done my research, but I was going to have him on because he did do legal work for the FLCC, and he is very much running on all of our medical freedom issues against the clot shots and everything. Um, so it was like, okay, is it him? Is it someone else? Nope. Trump comes in and endorses Joe Lombardo, the most establishment, the worst candidate you can get. Trump is the most subversive force at this point. He finishes off what McConnell and the ilk can't do to us, he does, and gets the remaining conservatives on board with the worst establishment candidates. If you notice now, it's all about polling with him. Basically, at first he wanted to shake it up a little bit, but then he started being saying, well, I want to shake it up and then, but win. Now it's all about a winning column. So he basically looks, whoever is the head, head in the polls a few months out of the election, that's who he supports. Okay? And obviously... The establishment guy is always going to be ahead initially, and we need Trump to be the equal force, the equalizer, and now he's actually tipping the scale the other way. So he sees the polls in Ohio that DeWine is winning. Now there, he already got into a fight with DeWine, so he's not going to support him, and DeWine has publicly trashed him because it's all personal, but if DeWine would have kissed up to him, even though even being the same rhino dirtbag, he actually would have endorsed him. So nothing is changing. Dr. Oz, the animal jerk-off in Pennsylvania for Senate, and you know he, he just recently said he wants to bring in more Ukrainian refugees. I mean, checks all the boxes. Trump endorses him. You tell me, if you come away this cycle with one to two better senators and 10 to 20 better House members and no better governors, where does that leave us? We don't even have a majority of the majority, assuming Republicans take the majority in the, in the House. In the Senate, we have like five that could be counted on depending on the issue. And not really. What are you going to do? All we had to do was focus in the reddest states and get another 7, 8, 10. Easily we could have done, we could have done 20. DeSantis governors. And similar on the legislative front, you have a different country. You have sanctuaries to move to. And again, it's not just a sanctuary because the, you see even Florida, even DeSantis is serving as a counterbalance. You have 10 of those. It, it serves as a check and balance. It, it, the cascading effect on our entire body politic is immeasurable. But no, there's no, there's no focus. You tell me where I could go for another DeSantis as governor. You know, I might have Kerry Lake on from Arizona. That might be potential, potential uh, prospect there. I'll try. But this is the point, folks. It looks like the Democrats are going to get slaughtered. Oh, man, I can't wait till November. And I'm telling you, 
the legislatures, the governors, the and certainly the senators and congressmen, they don't define the playing field. The masters of the universe who control all geopolitical affairs and the media that reports on them, they control it. It's a matter of what you're going to do with it and what you're going to do to create your own fires that, you know, like DeSantis does, to force the media to fight you on your playing field. But if you don't do that, they're going to fall into the same trap. It's like, Daniel, Republicans are never going to spend as much as the Democrats. Well, in a vacuum, in a static analysis, that's true, except the world is dynamic. It's not static. So they'll force a catalyzing event like COVID and Ukraine. Oh, well, yeah, that's an exception. We got to do this. So they'll spend more than they ever spend. That's what they do. You're forgetting. You're forgetting the playing field. You're forgetting who controls the world events. A lot of you don't even remember how 95% of Republicans bought into BLM and Floyd and the whole narrative. Oh, we need to the policing and this one. It was the exact opposite. We're having a crime wave and jailbreak and we were too weak on criminals and particularly black criminals. Just the opposite. At a time when we have a war on whites, unrelenting genocide, it's disgusting. And it's time we admit that Republicans bought onto the blood libel that just fueled it even more. It's going to continue happening. Look, if there's good candidates that are worthy of my support, I'll look into it, but they're awfully hard to find. And believe me, I'm looking for good news. So in that vein, I do want to have our next guest on. Now that we discussed the bad news, let's discuss some good news. Now, I know I sound very pained and agitated today, but there's a reason for it. And like I've been saying all along, it's because it doesn't have to be this way. We basically have a scenario in this country where about half the country is controlled by states where the majority and really supermajority of voters agree with us on the values and the issues. And that's reflected in the fact that the Republican Party, which is not is unfortunately not a reflection of those voters, but is purported to be, and in the minds of the voters, that's the choice they have, they have super majorities in these states. I mean, there's about 18 supermajority trifecta governments. And every once in a while, we get tantalized with a good bill passed here, um, a good bill signed here by a governor. We obviously see that a lot in Florida. And it makes you realize, wait a minute, it doesn't have to be this way. These are 70, 30, 80, 20 issues, and particularly in the areas we're talking about. So even if the federal government's lost, you're not going to fix HHS. You're not going to fix DOJ. Um, we don't have to wait for narrow, rhino, McCarthy, uh, McConnell majorities in, in Washington with Biden still being president anyway to do anything. You realize that at a state level, if you look at the control we already should have, you take crime, you take COVID fascism, medical freedom, healthcare in general, by the way. Um, you look a lot at a lot of the regulatory structure, even energy policy. You look at illegal immigration, although that would take a cooperation between multiple states, I believe, to really effectively do that. But we should have multiple state control. Really everything except for foreign policy. We should be independent 
of the morass of what we are experiencing from our, our governing elites. But, but we don't. We have one good bill maybe passed here and there on one issue in a handful of states. And that just makes me more mad because you look, and, and, and usually we win it without a fight. And one of those states is Tennessee, except we're actually seeing a trend there where it's not just one or two issues. There's a lot of very substantial issues that have been uh, moved forward in that state on crime we talked about earlier this week. One of the bills that recently got signed into law there is a bill not just to protect doctors who want to prescribe off-label, life-saving drugs like ivermectin, but to go a step further to make it available over-the-counter in pharmacies. And I think of the amount of lives that were lost because people couldn't get a hold of it. And at the time, it seemed impossible. Like, you know, we were lucky enough to get a bill just simply a defensive bill. Don't tase me, bro. Don't harm the doctor for prescribing it. We didn't even dream of making it over the counter when I first wrote that article to make it over the counter maybe uh, about a year ago. We never dreamed of passing it. But why? Why? It's a winning issue. It's life say Why not? Why don't we shoot higher? And lo and behold, in Tennessee, they actually became the first state. It is now the law. It's over the counter in Tennessee. And it's like, wait a minute, why couldn't we do that earlier? And why don't we have 2025 states doing that? And why don't we have 2025 states doing 15, 20 other winning important issues? That's the question. But for now, let's at least celebrate where we are getting it done. And with us today is the man who's really been driving this. Um, You can't really have a governor and a Senate doing the right thing if you don't have the House doing the right thing, because that's really the body of government that's always the closest to the people. Typically, the problem is the same bad Republican leadership we have in Washington, we have in the states. Tennessee is an exception, and it's showing. It's showing with the results. So with us today is Speaker Cameron Sexton. He's been the Tennessee Speaker of the House for the past couple of years. He's been a member of the Tennessee House for about 11 years, representing the 25th Legislative District, uh, roughly east-central Tennessee, a little bit to the west of Oak Ridge. Um, and he has really been the driving force behind a lot of these good bills. Cameron, thanks so much for joining us today for the first time at Blaze Media. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I I appreciate the opportunity. Look, as you can tell, I'm feisty today, and I'm always upset about Republicans screwing us. So I definitely want to highlight the the successes. Um, You guys seem to have been pretty busy. You're the first one to actually pass a bill to lock up criminals, make ivermectin over the counter. You had a comprehensive bill banning mass mandates, vaccine mandates, really the first state to have it all in there, even before Florida did. Um, What is the secret sauce? I can't get this stuff passed in any other state. Well, I think the secret is, is it's the people that in Tennessee that they elect to represent them. And I think that's why you see Tennessee as red as it is. And I think it's probably one of the few, if not the only state uh, that voted more for Trump than it did four years prior um, in the last presidential election. And so our state is really a deep red state and our members um, are very conservative. And so we're, we've been pushing back, as you said, on, on, on what was happening with COVID, you know, with medications and not allowing people to make the determinations on what they want to take for themselves and let them evaluate the risk. I think what you've seen with our state is is we're about um, individual freedom and allowing people to make those decisions for themselves. 
um, and, and let them weigh the risk of everything and, and, and see the government trying to force them to do something that they may not want to do. Wow. That, I mean, that is what you're saying is simple, but it's not so simple. Um, what you're basically saying is the people want freedom. And I agree with you. The people want freedom, I think, in most states. And frankly, I think a lot of these issues, especially with ivermectin over the counter and you're talking about, you know, you know, free of mandates and then the truth and sentencing bill, you know, locking up the most violent criminals for 100 percent of their sentence. I think that would win even in blue states. But here's the problem that I want to present to you. Uh, in every other state, I can never get a speaker on the show because they just don't share the values of this audience. Um, and, and, and here's why. Red states have more voters that support freedom. But on the same spectrum, the special interests that reside in those states, and particularly the Chamber of Commerce and the medical cartel, the hospital associations, big pharma, they are just as odious in the red states as they are the blue states. I mean, it doesn't make a difference. And so you could have as many, you know, 80, 20 conservative voters as you want in your district, but you take next door to you, for example, in Arkansas, it's not the freedom-oriented traditional conservative voters that win the day in the legislature. It's Walmart, Tyson's, J.B. Hunt. How did you break through that with a bill like making ivermectin over the counter? Because every other state, the medical cartel came in and all the Republicans stood down. Well, I think even when you're looking at COVID, we still had hospitals that were wanting to fight back against CMS and not be forced to do vaccinations. Maybe our state's a little different than others. I'm not saying that you don't have chambers or other things that are opposed to these ideas. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, is when you make a, a very logical, clear argument on why people should have the right to choose to take a particular drug, if that's what they want to do, and and allow it to be prescribed or allow that or allow the pharmacist um, to, to fill it or to give it out. Um, I think people have a hard time arguing against reasonable, logical ideas. And a lot of times what happens is the left tries to um, and, uh, to cause a fire under and try to make it sound like it's irrational and you're going to kill people. And so. I think that's the battle that we've been having in Tennessee. Unfortunately, we've been winning on, on reasonable and logical arguments, and they're having a hard time uh, trying to torch us on it. So another similar issue where I think it's – you talk about logical, where you speak to the average Democrat voter, much less you know independent or Republican, and they're one direction, but the special interests are on the other side is crime. The last, um, I'd say, 10 years, every southern red state – um, the Koch brothers sort of libertarian organizations, along with Soros, along with the big business interests, have been obsessed with de-incarceration. Um, and Tennessee has not escaped that. Um, you know, so there's been this trend to kind of reverse the 90s and the early 2000s, where we're letting out more and more, more leniency on juveniles, more leniency on bail, more leniency on early release and, you know, avoiding prison. And we warned that, look, you're going to have a crime wave. I mean, if you keep doing this, you're going to have a major crime wave. Well, here we are. Um, it's not just New York and California. We got Memphis as the most violent metro area in the country. Nashville crimes going up. Even a smaller city like Chattanooga is experiencing record crime. Um, and to this day, every legislature I know is still passing more lenient bills. You guys went in the opposite direction. Can you describe the bill and describe politically how you powered through that? 
Yeah, so I mean, what the bill did last year, we passed 31 crimes historically against women and children, and we put those at 100 percent. And that was the precursor for this year to go against uh, to go after the violent crimes, which uh, there were eight violent crimes that we put at 100 percent, second degree murder, first degree, uh, first uh, degree attempted murder, anything that's especially aggravated carjacking, which is on the rise um, all over our country, Um, vehicular homicide by intoxication. And then we put another uh, about 17 crimes that they have to serve a minimum of 85 percent. And what we did is we took away the good credit. You know, if you're in prison, you should be expected to be good. You shouldn't be good and get reduced sentencing. Um, And and so there should be an expectation. And and so that's what we put forth when we started talking about it. And you just mentioned Memphis, which is probably one of the bluest cities that we have in our state. And the Democrat mayor, Mayor Jim Strickland, um, the police chief, the sheriff, um, who were uh, Democrats, um, the DAs and, and the judges agree that you need to have harsher sentencing. The only people who disagree are all these groups who are making money off doing programming in the prisons are the ones who don't want you to have harsher sentences. But even in the bluest city in our state, the public there, even the people want to have harsher sentences because they don't want their kids um, uh, being uh, assaulted when they come home from school or, or they're afraid to walk home from school. And in Tennessee, when you hear gunshots in Tennessee, depending on where you live, you think someone's hunting or someone's shooting a gun um, and trying to kill somebody. And you have children who had to learn in some of these inner cities to get under their bed and hide when they hear gunshots. And, and so I think what you've seen, uh, even with the rioting that the left did in Washington and Oregon and California and and everywhere else in New York is people just had enough and they're tired of having a lawless society and they want people to serve the sentence. I've, we've heard that time and time again. They need to serve the sentence that they get. And that, that's what we passed in Tennessee. You know, you know, I read that about the Memphis Democrat officials, and I found that astounding that on the one hand, you had the American Conservative Union, which hosts the annual CPAC convention coming out, really attacking your bill um, you know, that, that somehow there's no science behind, uh, um, you know, incarcerating criminals, like leading to reduction in crime, kind of like, I guess there's no science in using anti-inflammatories to treat an inflammatory disease type of deal. (laughs) Uh, but at the same time, the Democrats that live with it, you know, in the inner cities, um, they were for it. And it shows you the disconnect of the elites that you know they're able to virtue signal over. Oh, we love criminal justice reform, um, but they don't, they don't live with it. They don't live with the consequences of having those criminals out. Um, so that's a very powerful example, and I hope it could be continued. One of the things that's bothering me, and I'm curious what your take is as a speaker. I'm noticing throughout the country that state legislatures have become meaningless. Um, they were set up for an 1800s scenario. <laughs> where government was very limited, and number two, only the legislative branch legislates, and they wanted to keep government limited, so they limited the time that they're in session. Uh, They have small staff, small budget, very part-time, often limited the scope of of how they could even introduce legislation. I don't know what your laws are, but a lot of states, it's like you can only introduce legislation for like three seconds, and you you have a funnel deadline, and and, and, you know, and that was great. But now that we have the federal and state bureaucracies, the departments of health, departments of education, flush with billions in cash, 
changing the world, changing society, mandating people's lives, changing culture. The legislature is our only tool to redress and fight back, you know, because they could legislate 365 days a year without a problem. And then it's like, we'll gain momentum on a certain issue, you know, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's medical freedom, right? Crime, we have a big crime. Oh, no, we're, we're not in session. We can't get in session. Oh, whoops, we can't do anything. And they could keep doing what they want. How do you feel we could strengthen and make state legislatures great again in an arm of the people? Well, that's a great question. I think we sort of saw that through COVID. And I think what you saw um, is a federal government that tried to impose through OSHA or CMS or other mechanisms, mandates all the way down to the businesses um, and forced them to do things that they didn't want to, force the people to do things they didn't want to. And what you saw is you saw the Republican governors through the Republican Governor Association, the Republican attorney generals in each state. And they actually started meeting and talking and trying to figure out how to combine their efforts and put in lawsuits in place in various courts, systems that are a little bit different um, with the federal system to, to get some wins. And so I think what you saw was the red states actually figuring out to do what the, the Democrats have been doing is how to use our power, how to use our red states to fight back against an overreaching federal government that's very good at trying to direct you to do things. And the one way that they do it all the time, it's the same thing they did with CMS, is they threaten to withhold money and they threaten to do this. But it all revolves around the almighty dollar. And so we've been very conscious about not trying to do things that the federal government wants to do simply because we get money. That's why we didn't do expansion here in Tennessee, because it didn't make sense. The policy did not make sense. And it doesn't matter if the federal government's going to give you a billion dollars or pay 100 percent for it. If the policy doesn't work, you don't do it because the feds are paying for it. You turn it down. And I think that's the lesson that we're all having to start to learn is don't be enticed by the federal government incentives to do something that you know is bad policy. That's a really good point. I mean, because I've noticed that a lot in addition to kind of the special interests owning the state capitals, the biggest impediment is, like you said, this the, the federal funds, it's unlimited because, you know, they got the printing press and they're not tethered to tax revenue uh, like states are. So that's where they get the money. And that's where you have the control. Um, and and that's what makes a lot of red states not as red as they should be. Um, headed forward, headed forward. What are some of the ways you think that the state could fight back against other problematic federal policies, you know, are you looking at potentially other special sessions or at least the next regular session? What are some other priorities that you feel that you now have the opportunity to push in in Tennessee and work off of this momentum? Well, I mean, I, I, we, we had a great session this year, and, and we pushed back on, on various things. You know, uh, uh, the books in the library and the school libraries has been an issue, and, and how Facebook is is using uh, online library to get into our, our school systems and, and allow the kids to access books maybe that they wouldn't be accessed. And, and so we, we uh, put a stop to that. You know, I think from going forward, I think really what needs to happen is, and this is why uh, Republicans are very good sometimes, but we're not very good at working outside of our geographical boundaries. And, and what I mean by that is, is we, we, sometimes we want to fight with ourselves too much and not figure out how to combine on these big items to fight together. And, and I think that's what we did on COVID. And I think it worked very, very well. 
I think that there's other fights that we need to go about, whether it's about um, health insurance, about keeping prices low, reducing the, the government intervention, reducing the insurance company's monopoly on us and, mm. and, and, and how they're the ones increasing health care costs. It, it's not the providers. Um, and it's really not the pharmaceutical companies. It's the insurance companies any, and the PBM. Do you PBM. have any good ideas on, on that? Because I, I, I'm, I'm curious about that. I agree with you. That's that's the key to medical freedom. And we saw that with a lot of them starting to dictate what they'll, you know, they'll cover remdesivir, but they won't cover ivermectin, things like that. But with Medicare, Medicaid, and then, of course, the um, you know, the original sin of healthcare, which is the employer tax exclusion worth worth several hundred billion at a federal level, that the feds really have controlled that. How do we break through that at a state level? Well, I, I think it's going to take time, and I think it's 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 you look at the, uh, Obamacare and what they're trying to do within all the Medicaid programs. Um, I, I think what you have to do is is one thing we keep preaching here is at the end of the day, if you're offering a government service to somebody, you want to make sure that it's delivering the services and that they are actually benefiting from it, meaning if they're on the Medicaid program, that they're healthier, that we're spending less money on them today than we were two years ago if they were on it. That was the mechanism to get them off. And I think we would love to have the opportunity in our state to design a program that meets the needs of our people that's different than other states. But what the federal government wants to do is that they want to put everybody in the same box and not allow you the freedom to have a program and design a program, because we would probably love to do like a health savings account. Because what you would love to do for individuals that are on these government plans is you need to have them be able to make decisions for themselves. And right now, government programs, what they do is you don't have to make the decision. You just go and they get paid for whatever service it is and they leave. There's no accountability, there's no shopping, there's no competition. And when things are free, no one really cares about what the value is or what the costs are. And so we have to shift how we have our society and really try to figure out how to have a more open comp- competitive marketplace and not be controlled by three PBMs in this country or a few insurance companies that are driving up the costs and their profits are driving up. That will allow people to have more freedom to to have them and the provider be in charge of their health care instead of the insurance companies telling you you have to do two tests that both require radiation and the providers arguing the first one is not going to show anything. Why am I exposing you to more radiation? Because that's what your book says. And I think that's what we're having to fight back with in the healthcare marketplace. And I think what we've learned with COVID, it's not just the cost, but it's the actual care is, is life and death. I mean, what they will demand you do and what they will ban you from doing um, that. I mean, you know, I think you, 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 you get this, that a lot of Republicans always focused on, oh, Europe is socialist. We have f- freedom in a minute. No, we don't. It's, it's, it's just more illusory. They're a socialist. We're venture socialist. We have basically the go- government has a manipulated monopoly where the couple of so-called private entities that, you know, enforce the spirit of the age through healthcare. So that is a very important issue, medical freedom. Um, I'd love to go through a bunch of things. We're pretty much out of time. Uh, focus on one one more issue I have here. Another way the feds are really transforming the state, social transformation without representation, is illegal immigration and also refugee resettlement. Um, you have a place like Nashville that I've, I've read over the years, over the past decades, you have, you have dozens upon dozens of foreign languages now spoken in one school district. It's just too much, too quick, um, endless resettlement, 
Um, and, and Biden plans on doing more and more and more. Uh, you know, so in addition to the border, you get Ukraine and then you get Afghanistan and more. Tennessee was the first state, if I remember, that tried to challenge this notion that the feds could just carte blanche resettle. Um, again, you know, pump that money into uh, all these resettlement contractors and just carte blanche socially transform, settle an area. Um, where does that fight stand? And is that something that you feel you could fight back against the feds on during the next session? We can. I mean, it, it, it's hard. You know, we passed some E-Verify bills to try to make it tougher um, for, for them to want to be in our state, um, illegals. You know, the problem you have with the federal government is, is, they, is they ship people in overnight and they don't tell you where they're going and they put them in places that you don't even know they're putting. And we had the problem 10 years ago under Obama's administration. President Trump really put a stop to it and allow us to get our feet back under us. And then all of a sudden you have Joe Biden where the border is uh, uh, probably the most poorest thing that we have around here as far as letting people in left and right. And, and there was a situation where they were busting people into our state, and we were luck, lucky. We figured out who had those contracts and where they were sending them because we had uh, good people on the ground who were watching them when they came in and was telling us where they were sending them. And so we ended up uh, uh, changing those contracts and removing those contracts because there were serious things going on in those facilities, and we shut them down. And, and, and so we put a stop to it that way. We would love to have more help out of Washington um, and hopefully – if we get that back here, uh, the House and the Senate, and then get the president back, we can continue doing what Trump was trying to do. And, you know, I, I, we want people to come into our country. We want people to visit our state. We just want them to come in legally. And, and that's what we really want them to do. Yeah. I mean, I would just say that, you know, I don't think we can wait till 2025 with this transformation. And as far as legal, um, I mean, refugee resettlement technically is all legal, but I mean, it's it's a matter of numbers, you know, it's and, and why we're doing it, what they're doing it. Um, so, I mean, there is a lot of social transformation going on there. So as far as refugee resettlement, that is prospective, right? So that usually is not snuck in. I mean, you, you kind of get a sense of what they're doing. So is there a way you could opt out or not participate in at least the program? Because that's a formal program. That's not right. just dumping in overnight. Well, so Governor Lee has had many conversations um, with the Biden administration about how we don't want anybody resettled in our state. And so we, we have pushed back. And at this point, um, I, I think we're limited, but you never really know because they never really say. But we have um, pushed back and said we, we don't really want anybody resettled because they had all those people from uh, – uh, uh, overseas when the when Biden pulled out that were coming here yep. as refugees they weren't vetted you had no idea who they were or what they were doing exactly and so and so we pushed back what I will tell you though is what the Biden administration did early on during that whole time is is they were only shipping the refugees to red states they weren't even shipping them to blue states and so they were trying to change I think they were trying to change the red states population to your point exactly for years down the road and and so but we did have the governors to push back um, and as much as they could under the law. And, and we were trying to do a couple things, um, but it was determined that uh, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly, but we were told they were some of those things were unconstitutional and we couldn't do them. But but we have been trying to push back and at least voice our concern that we don't we don't need them in Tennessee. Yep. And and, um, you know, I would just say, I look, I understand the immigration issue is a little bit tougher at a state level because that, by definition, is coming international. Um, 
letter of the law, you have less power to fight back, but letter of the law, neither do, do the feds have the power to do what they're doing, especially at the border, from that vantage point. And I think this is really where Madison um, comes in in Federalist 46, when he talks about state interposition and where the sentiments of several adjoining states happen to be in unison. I think this is where it's so important to build on what you're doing in Tennessee. And if you get, you know, five, 10, 15 other red states to do the similar thing together, you start forming compacts. Hey, this ain't happening. Again, just remember, Speaker, we're not governed by the rule of law in this country. We're governed by the rule of political will. It's 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 always been that way. It's more so now. Um, and that's the reality. One side uses it, and you know it's time to push back. I appreciate what you're doing. Please keep us updated. Um, whenever you guys have something that's worthy of national attention, again, I, my hat's off to you. The only bill to really have truth in sentencing, the only bill making ivermectin over the counter. Keep up the great work. All right. Thank you very much. God bless. So there you have it, folks. That was Speaker Cameron Sexton. Um, I must say... I don't know of any other sitting speaker in this country that would come on a show like this. So I think that does say a lot. You know, um, obviously he is trying to, you know, he's going to have to be somewhat of a coalition builder. Um, It's not going to be a backbencher that's going to come on and bash the governor or whatever and, you know, kind of bash the party like I've been doing the rest of the show. But, you know, the results speak for themselves. I mean, he's gotten results, whereas others claim that they're trying to work you know, build coalitions, they don't get anything out of it. So to me, his actions speak louder than his words. The opposite of what we see with most, most Republicans, he's not kind of a, a bomb thrower like I am, but he, he gets it done. So, um, you know, I really wanted to highlight that. I felt there were already three transformational bills that I felt that they passed that no other state did. And you don't have a particularly great uh, Senate and governor there. So typically we don't see that across the country. And this is my point. It doesn't have to be that way. But it's all leadership. That's the difference. If it's only a handful of five, ten guys in the back of the chamber pushing for something, it never gets done. It's all a matter of getting leaders in. And that's the question. How do we do that? You get a, you get a Cameron Sexton in every leadership position in every red state. You get a different country. And again, you don't even need a Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, you listen to the guy, it doesn't sound like that. But, you know, he has certain core convictions, willing to, you know, push on 80% of the issues. That's what I mean when I say the difference between success and failure is a hairline. You know, what looks hopeless, yeah, Daniel, we'll never be able to get that. Are you kidding me with all the special interests? Ivermectin over the counter. Are you kidding me at a time when we're, you know, passing all these de-incarceration bills to pass a bill that will lock up more people for longer? We're never going to, he just did it. They had the bill. And I know some of you are going to email me, ah, Tennessee sucks, Daniel, you're overrating it. Look, I'm grading on a curve. It's all relative. And I understand often the Senate watered down some of this stuff, but, but part of the thing is that on the House side, he started off stronger. And that's what's lacking in a lot of these other states. The House will start off, you know, to begin with compromising, and then the Senate makes it worthless. So here, yeah, I understand the the anti-mandate bill, you know, it was watered down from what he introduced in the House by the time it got to the Senate. But, you know, he does seem to know how to play his, his cards a lot better. And I definitely think this is something we can learn from um, folks, there's actually a lot of interesting news out today on 
a new mass study actually showing worse outcomes with mass mandates in Europe, a very large study published in Curious uh, Journal. There's also the Israeli study published in Nature um, from an MIT professor showing a 25% increase in heart attack calls to Israeli EMSs. Very important study. I'll talk a little bit about next week why it's more significant than anything we've seen. Again, send me your ideas, whether they're electoral, whether they're policy, what we can do to solve the issues, but also the systemic political structure problem. This is much bigger than any of us, and I, I want to make a difference. That's what, that's why I'm doing this. I, I just don't care about anything else, um, even though I'm never going to make a lot of money like all these other guys just whoring for terrible ideas. But that's, that's the way it is. And you guys are my family. You guys are my support structure. That's why I need you to send this show to every one of your friends and relatives. Please give us a five-star rating with a comment on iTunes if you can. We haven't been censored there yet. Hope you guys have a terrific weekend with your family. We'll be back same time, same place next week. God bless you all, and thank you for